Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Today we are reading from Acts chapter 6 verse 8 through to 8 1, so it is lengthy. I advise you to follow along on paper because it is so long. (laughs) Um, So Acts Acts 6 verse 8. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stops speaking about this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Are these things true? The high priest asked. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen, the the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. So he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favour and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent his ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt, until a different king, who did not know Joseph, ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all, all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. 
He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of, the, of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge, this one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as, is written, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon rather who built him a house, but the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will, be, what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus, at the right, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Lord, come now and sanctify us in truth. May the same Holy Spirit that filled your servant Stephen be with me and be with us as we look at your powerful, unchanging word tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again to our church gathered here in North Adelaide. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the elders uh, down at, at Glen Elk. And it's always my pleasure to be here, as, and as uh, Tran said, especially on a night when there's food. Really looking forward to that. And uh, I may have made notes like in the preaching roster as to uh, put myself in when there's food coming, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So there was an epic passage. Um, take, took, takes about eight or nine minutes to, to read through. Um, an epic speech by Stephen and an epic climax to that speech. See, because we're up to this point in the story, and Acts is a story of how uh, God forms the church, builds the church, and uses the church to change the world. And where we're at in the story, um, for the very first time, the opposition to the church has drawn blood. Last week, uh, Dave O'Gunning was here, and he highlighted three tactics of the opposition, uh, wanting to take down the church, wanting to stop it. Uh, Satan and his team, they tried to sow seeds of corruption. We saw that in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. He, he tried persecution by uh, jailing the apostles and having them beaten. And then he tried distraction. He said, let's, let, last week, let's try and get the church focused on the internal logistics of running a large organization so that they might not be, continue to preach the gospel. And see, none of these tactics worked. They all failed. The church continued to carry out their mission of taking the gospel to wherever they were being sent. Why? Because the leaders all, all along the way were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And now this week, Luke is going to zoom in on one of those leaders, the very first leader we read anything at length about who is not one of the original 12 apostles, a man called Stephen, who is described in the first verse, the opening verse, as a man full of grace and power. You know, at the end of the gathering last week, uh, Joe and Lydia were, were leading us, and we sang In Christ Alone, and he stopped to pause over that line in the final verse that says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And I think this text is a good chance to really ask the question, what does that actually look like in life? No guilt in life, no fear in death. How does that anthem sound when our side is getting absolutely smashed? When the opposition stacked against us is fierce and relentless? When following Jesus means walking into the valley of the shadow of death. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Let me give you a little bit of background to Stephen. Uh, Luke introduced us to Stephen last week. He was, as I said, not one of the original 12 apostles. We don't know for sure where he was born or where he grew up, but he has a Greek name. 
uh, likely spoke the Greek language. We see here in verse 10, he's interacting with other African and Asian Jews. So he's probably not a native Jerusalemite. He's hanging out with other people who are not native Jerusalemites. He is a representative or a messenger from the ends of the earth, which is where the gospel is heading. Right from the beginning, we see the apostles were not interested in surrounding themselves with people exactly like them. You know, people they went to school with. The criteria was never, you know, what school did you go to? Did you go to Brighton? Did you go to PAC? Are you fancy like that? You know, I went to a school called Christian Academy of Louisville. Maybe you've heard of it. It's on the other side of the hills, planet. Um, I'm not from around here. And I'm glad that that wasn't a criteria for me to be, you know, come on the, the team here at City Light Church. Because, you know, for most people in Adelaide, I'm an unknown entity. I don't, well, you can't put, pin me down. I didn't grow up here. And Stephen, I don't think, grew up in Jerusalem. And then when we, so when we meet these Greek-speaking Jews from North Africa and Asia, um, and, and this is a bit speculative, I wonder if they're sitting there thinking, man, Stephen, you're, you're, you're like us, right? You're, you're Jewish, but you're not from here. You speak Greek. What are you doing, really, talking about Jesus and making a big, big spectacle of yourself and joining in with these other Christians? And they, they oppose him fiercely and publicly, and yet the Scripture says their opposition fails. This sets the scene for Stephen's speech in response to the charges against him and then for the glorious outcome. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, as a follower of Jesus, just like you and me, he was treated in the exact way that Jesus was treated. He, he preached the same message that Jesus preached. And he's going to taste and see the glory of God that Jesus lived and died for. And now your life, our lives, hidden in Christ, are destined for the very same. First takeaway from the story of Stephen's death is that to follow Jesus means that you will be treated in the way that Jesus was treated which shouldn't surprise us if we've heard the words of Jesus and really reflected on them. Jesus did this a lot when he was teaching. Um, there's a bunch of these passages that say a similar thing, but I'm going to give you one that's from John chapter 15. It's up on the screen. He, Jesus taught us this. He said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world... But I've chosen you out of it. The world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So here we see with Stephen, just like the apostles back in chapter 5, this is a fulfillment of Jesus' words to them. Stephen was not of the world. Instead, what was he? He was full of grace and power, just like Jesus was. He, per he performed signs and wonders, it says, just like Jesus and his followers did. And just like happened to Jesus, he attracts fierce opposition. Verse 9, you see these various Jews from the ends of the earth, they show up to argue with Stephen. But verse 10 says this, they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. 
which is, again, another fulfillment of another promise of Jesus. If you go back to Luke, Luke's first book, Luke chapter 21, here's what Jesus says there. He's talking about when, you, when not if, but when you and I get dragged into court and brought up on charges because of me, he says, I will give you such words and a wisdom that none, none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You know, Stephen himself, maybe he had other, you know, speaking uh, skills that he'd learned from somewhere else, but it's not necessarily true. It's not, necessarily, not necessary that he was a gifted speaker, or a good lawyer, a winner of arguments, you know, but he was full of the Spirit and wisdom. And so, therefore, he was demolishing his opponents. They couldn't say anything to him. And then what happens? They can't pin him down with the truth. What do they do? Now they've got to resort to lies. What sort of lies in verse 11? They tell, they, they say that Stephen is blaspheming against Moses and God. And then in verse 13 and 14, this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. So what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is a, a, the act of speaking offensively about sacred things. Uh, blasphemy laws. Uh, today, there are places in the world, um, including, I did some research on this, including here in South Australia. Um, blasphemy laws here in South Australia have never actually been revoked. We inherited them from English common law. Um, fun fact. Blasphemy laws stipulate that you cannot say what you cannot say about a sacred deity or ruler or institution. And if you violate those laws, you can be brought up on charges. You might end up in jail, or in some cases, you might even face execution. Blasphemy laws are carried out against uh, people around the world, uh, in particular against Christians. Uh, one example that's been in the news a lot lately is um, there's a poor farm worker woman by the name of Asya um, from Pakistan. And if you haven't heard her story, you can Google it. The brief synopsis, they're a hot day back in 2009, 10 years ago. She was out working in a field harvesting uh, berries, and she went to go fetch some water for her co-workers. She was a Christian. She was the only Christian woman in her village. All of her co-workers were Muslim. She went to harvest uh, these uh, berries, and on the way, or sorry, to get some water, on the way back, she uh, drank, had a sip of the water. It was very hot. Um, her co-workers saw her drink, and they were, uh, they, they were horrified because in their culture, um, Christians and Muslims can't eat and drink from the same utensils because of contamination. And so they confronted her. There was an argument, and in the course of the argument, she responded to defend herself when they were telling her she needed to convert uh, and become Muslim, and she says this. She says, I believe in my religion and in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of mankind. What did your prophet Muhammad ever do to save mankind? Oh, problem. Um, some powerful religious leaders in the community didn't like that, and they got involved, and she became charged, uh, or she was charged with blasphemy. She was sentenced by a local court in 2010 to death uh, by hanging. Her case was appealed, and just last year, eight years later, she her, was heard by the Supreme Court of Pakistan. She was acquitted. Uh, she's still in custody in Pakistan today, um, waiting for safe passage out of the country because of the fear that even if she's let out of jail, that an unruly mob might find her and kill her. Now, I wanted to share that story with you 
if you're not familiar with it, uh, not to uh, shine a spotlight on, uh, on Muslims uh, having a go at Christians or on Pakistan or anything uh, like that. Uh, I, as I said before, blasphemy laws, including the ones in Pakistan, are based on the ones that the British uh, came up with. So, it, you know, it, they're, they're all over the world, and they, are ba- and they came down from ancient societies as well. And the, the purpose of a blasphemy law really was to prevent mob violence. It was to sort of prevent this outbreak of rage that would just sort of flare up in interreligious or, or fam- family disputes. And so it was a way to control them. But unfortunately, every law with a good intention can be twisted and used as a weapon in the hands of powerful people against the vulnerable, against minorities, against religious minorities in particular. And there are countless examples of this happening in history, including examples of Christians or supposed Christian people using these very same laws to persecute other uh, Christians they disagree with or uh, other religious minorities. And so, again, I'm not trying to pick on Muslims here, but I'm just telling you that blasphemy laws have a long and sordid history, and they are still being used as a weapon of injustice today. See, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we meet at the very end, first mentioned that Paul, he used to be called Saul, um, was at the end of the, the reading. Saul was there at the execution of Stephen, approving of what was, you know, holding the jackets of those who were throwing rocks at him, and uh, he's there giving his approval to what was going on. Uh, later on, that same man, after he'd been converted, <laughs> which just is amazing. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Uh, he was sitting in a jail cell, sitting in a jail cell, having himself been persecuted for following and preaching Jesus. And he writes these words to the Philippians. He says, this is from Philippians 1, uh, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Paul believed that suffering, just like faith, is a gift. Remember the the end of Acts chapter 5? The apostles, Peter and John, are flogged, which means they're beaten with whips, backs lacerated, and they get released, and they come out of the jail, and they're dancing, and they're singing. Guys, guess what? We just got treated like rubbish. We're bleeding just like Jesus. How amazing is that? Now, that's not normal, unless somehow you come to the conviction that suffering is a gift. I want to point out one more thing from chapter 6. The final verse in the chapter says that everyone who looked at Stephen, before he'd even said a word, they said everyone looked at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What do you mean? I don't know what that conjures up in your mind. I don't know if it's the cute, chubby little baby face, you know, face of an angel, oh, so cute. Or maybe it's a wimpy-looking dude with creepy blue eyes and long blonde hair. I don't know what you think of when you think about angels. But if you read much about angels in the Bible, you would know that the face of an angel is more like the rock than the precious moments doll that you can smash on the ground. It's more John Wick than Thomas Kincaid, if that means anything to you. The most common opening line for an angel is fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Because if you were to actually meet an angel in a dark alley, you would need to change clothes. They are powerful beings. 
That shouldn't surprise us that the people here, they look at Stephen, they're like, he has a face of an angel. What they're saying is, we're intimidated by this guy. He's a beast. And we don't, know, we don't know how to argue with him. We don't know what to do with him. We're afraid of him. They can't beat him with arguments. He's performed miracles. And now he has this angelic look about him that could melt steel. I think this description, see, gives us a clue as to what's going on in the unseen, unseen realm. If you know uh, Paul's words to the Ephesians, that this battle that we're in, the opposition to the gospel going out, the opposition to the church. It's not a battle that we fight with other humans. It's not a battle that we fight with flesh and blood. There's something going on in the unseen realm that plays itself out through the actions of human beings. So what's going on here? If you remember back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's sort of like the table of contents or the theme verse for the whole book of Acts. Jesus says these words to the the very first Christians. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, so far, up to this point, all the action's been in Jerusalem. All the stuff that's going on right around the temple. And now you've got Stephen, who's doing the same miracles as the apostles. He's preaching the same gospel as the apostles. He's full of the same spirit as the the Jerusalem-based apostles, but he's not from Jerusalem. His opponents are also not from Jerusalem, and I think they recognize something. They're like, man, if we don't act now, this gospel is not going to stay in Jerusalem. It's like this dam, we see it starting to leak, it's about to just bust open, and we've got to act now or we're done. That's what the opposition is doing, thinking we've got to do, you know, do the last-minute Hail Mary pass down the field or else we're going to lose. So what can we do? What, let's look at what's, you know, where's the vulnerability of the church, okay? Stephen, he's pretty young. He's not from around here, so maybe he doesn't have so many friends. He's the guy that if he speaks Greek, he's the perfect guy to take the gospel out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Let's crush him. That's their strategy. The opposition thinks we've got to stop this guy. We've got to crush him. To follow Jesus, you see, is to be treated like he was treated, loved by those who believed and hated by the world and the principalities and powers, the unseen realm that we can't see, all to the glory of God. Now, moving to chapter 7 quickly, uh, we see that to follow Jesus is to preach what Jesus preached. What did he preach? Well, Jesus preached repentance and forgiveness of sins. He preached that he came not to get rid of the law, not to get rid of the temple, but to fulfill it. But see, for Jesus' opponents, that message was problematic. Mark and Matthew, they record for us that when Jesus was put on trial, just like Stephen's being put on trial here, when Jesus was put on trial, when he was, a question, when he was questioned and accused, they accused him of saying that he was going to destroy the temple. Stephen's opponents now raise the very same issues. Because from their perspective, the traditions and the law of Moses and the temple, these are the sacred symbols of the people. You destroy the law, you destroy the temple, you destroy us, you destroy the people. We have no identity without these things. That's what they thought which gives Stephen a massive opening to respond. It helps us to understand what Stephen is on about. 
Because, you know, at first glance, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Some scholars have even suggested that Stephen is giving this big, long speech. He's just stalling. It's like the little kid that knows they're about to get a punishment, and they're just like, you know, it's talking anything that they can think of just to distract mom and dad so that maybe they'll forget why they're in trouble in the first place. So we've got the longest speech in the book of Acts so far. What's he actually on about? Because it doesn't seem to be actually answering their questions. But I think he is on to something. He's making a very clear point. You know, I don't know what you would do if you were in his position. I, I know what I would have done. I would have been trying to do anything and say anything to get out of trouble. You know, to make these guys realize that I'm actually a nice person. I, I, I love God. Don't kill me. Like, I didn't mean what you think I meant. I didn't say that. Like, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, spin the, the words so that maybe they like me. But instead, he responds to their charges, not with a defense of himself. He didn't say anything about himself or his motives. He gives them a history lesson. Selected episodes from Israel's own history that he stitches together to make a point. What point? What's the summary of his message? Well, here's what I put to you that it is. He's showing his accusers that God's true people are recognized, are shown by the disposition of their hearts to God's messengers. God's true people are shown by the disposition of their hearts and their response to God's messengers. At the very end of his speech, he says that God has appointed the righteous one, the final messenger, to secure the rescue and redemption of God's people. But that his coming was foreshadowed and predicted by all this line of messengers that came before him. And the people that are hearing these, these lessons recounted, they think that they belong to God. They think that they are God's favored people. And so Stephen is calling them to examine their own hearts, and he's calling us to examine our hearts as well. Like, who are we in the story? Are we the good guys that are listening to and responding to God's message? Or are we the bad guys that are resisting God's message and seeking to silence his messengers? Are they in fact doing, are we in fact doing what Gamaliel warned about in chapter 5, thinking we're doing God a favor by stamping out this blasphemy and instead fighting against God? We don't have the time to unpack everything in chapter 7. It's quite long, but I want to just share a few highlights to give you an indication of what Stephen's message was and is. He's talking about the true identity of the true people of God. Who are they? How do you become a part of God's people? Because it was true then, it's true today. It starts out in verse 2. This is very important. Verse 2, he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Let me just stop there for a minute. Who are the people of God? They are the ones who God has chosen. Out of the blue, seemingly, God appears to Abraham. He's got no record. He's done nothing for God. Didn't have the law. Didn't have circumcision. Didn't have anything. He was just a guy minding his own business in Mesopotamia, which, by the way, 
was not the Bible Belt. Mesopotamia is the same location of Babylon, which becomes in the Bible like the epitome of evil and wickedness and idolatry and paganism. And here's Abraham in the heart of pagan country making a living for himself, and God appears to him and says, go to the place I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you, and I'm going to give you, and I'm going to make promises to you. It's God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this to Abraham, and Abraham's just receiving He has been selected, handpicked, chosen by God. See, the people of God, this is not, this is, you know, what Stephen's accusers thought. The people of God, we are the ones who are the good people. We're the ones who keep the law and protect it. We're the ones who defend the temple and protect its cleanliness. That's what it means to be the people of God. Stephen says, nope. People of God are the ones that God looks at and says, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. That's what it means to be the people of God. God's people are a chosen people, and they are also a rescued people. See, again, where was Abraham when he was called? He was in Mesopotamia, in the thick of this pagan land. He wasn't a good boy doing good things. He was a sinner in need of rescue. And that's what God did. He plucks him out of that place, and he sets his life on an entirely different course. That is the gospel right there. Gives them a promise of descendants and a homeland, but the journey won't be easy. He says, You won't possess the land yourself, it will be for your descendants after they sojourn for 400 years in Egypt. Well, how'd they end up in Egypt? Well, first of all, because Abraham's great grandchildren, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But verse 10, God, what's he do? Rescues him out of all his troubles. He showed Joseph so much favor that Joseph then would become the rescuer. He would rescue his entire family from famine. But then as time goes on, things go badly for Abraham's family in Egypt, and the entire nation ends up in slavery under the oppression of Pharaoh. And what does God do? He sends a rescuer. Verse 24, Moses himself was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter as an infant. Now he becomes the rescuer. The text says in verse 24, when he saw, when Moses saw one of them, one of his own people, the Hebrews being mistreated, he came to his rescue. But see, the people reject the rescuer. They reject him. They reject the messenger. And they force him to flee to the wilderness. But God is not going to abandon his plan. No, his plan is unstoppable. See, he sends Moses straight back to Egypt. Well, it was 40 years later, but he sends him back to Egypt. In verse 35, it says, This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was Moses himself who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. In other words, Moses was one in a long line of rescuer messengers for God's people. He was the foreshadow of the righteous messenger to come. And Stephen now stands here before his accusers as a man who, like Moses, performed signs and wonders in God's name, which helped to awaken people's hearts from death so that they might receive the rescue that is theirs in Jesus. Stephen also highlights that God's people were chosen in spite of their sin. And this is so key to understanding the gospel. God didn't choose you or me because we were righteous. There's only one righteous human, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. He chose us in spite of our rebellion. 
and he rescued us from the rightful consequences of our rebellion. See, remember that Stephen's accusers were so worked up about Stephen supposedly speaking against the law and traditions of Moses. And Stephen reminds them from their own history that, verse 39, he says, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. This is Moses. They pushed him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. That's our lineage. That's our stock right there. And you think these are the people that God chose and rescued? A bunch of ungrateful, rebellious jerks? Yeah, it's true. And it's good news for us because we're in their number. It's the heart of the gospel. God is not in the business of rescuing healthy people. No sooner had these people received the law and the land that they turn away from God, they start worshiping idols, and yet by sheer grace, God never rejects them. He disciplines them with plagues, disciplines them with defeat, disciplines them with exile, but he never lets them go in spite of their unfaithfulness. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for us. Final characteristic of God's true people that we see in Stephen's speech is that they're a global people. What do I mean by that? He says these people, God's people, are not confined to just one patch of land. Remember that Stephen's opponents are charging him with speaking against the temple in Jerusalem. Now, historically, we know this from history, that 35 years after Stephen gave this speech in front of the temple, the temple would be destroyed by the Romans. And yet the people of God are not destroyed. In fact, their numbers continue to grow and grow in the face of tremendous persecution. Stephen drives home this point when he brings up the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like the predecessor to the temple. It was the very first place where God's presence was seen to reside among his people. And it was made, it says here in Stephen's speech, it was made according to the pattern revealed to Moses by God. That tabernacle never resided in Jerusalem. It wasn't even in the land. It was in the wilderness. It was in the bush. And it moved. And by the time that Solomon finally builds the temple, there's widespread awareness among the people that God, his presence, is not confined to a building. His people aren't confined to Jerusalem. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He fills every space. And God's people are no different. We are destined to fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. Jesus' final words to his disciples were to remind them of this global mission. Go make disciples of all nations. The message that Jesus' followers preach, it's the very same message that Jesus preached. And until the day that he comes back, God's people are a chosen people, chosen by the one who rescues them from their rebellion and then sends them out to fill the earth with his glory. That's Stephen's message. Which brings us back to our final point. To follow Jesus. We've seen to follow Jesus is to be treated like Jesus was treated. To preach the message that Jesus preached. And now it's to taste and see the glory of God that Jesus lived and died for, even in death. I think Stephen, throughout this speech, he wasn't trying to stall. He knew he was going to die. He knew the opposition had smelled blood and that they wouldn't be satisfied with anything less. So he gets to the climax of his speech and he goes for the jugular. He just calls out their rebellion like it is. He does not mince words. Don was preaching on the same passage down at Glenelg this morning. He says he was bold, but he was not nice. 
It's a good lesson for us. He calls out their rebellion. They think they're the people of God. And Stephen says, nope, you're stiff-necked, just like your ancestors. You're on the wrong side of history. You think you're God's people just because you got circumcised. Nope. God wants men and women with circumcised, soft, teachable hearts. That's what he's looking for. You guys are the faithless, the idolaters, the murderers of the prophets in the story. You're the baddies. He's preaching boldly. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's telling his accusers that they are resisting the Holy Spirit. In other words, you guys are on Satan's team. You know, Jesus had very similar words for these same crew. You guys are so worried about the law, you don't even keep it. You kill God's messengers. You've got blood on your hands. Now, in case you think he's just spewing rage, beautiful conclusion here. Stephen is dying on his knees, bleeding. Verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, who does that remind you of? In his final breath, forgiving, loving his enemies. His heart is for their repentance, even up to the very end. If you needed any more evidence that was the spirit of Jesus living in this man, here it is. See, if the mark of the rebel is to resist God's spirit with violence, then the mark of the redeemed is to love an enemy. Stephen's final words are full of love and grace, and after saying this, Luke records, he died. I don't know what my last words will be. I don't know what your last words will be. I mean, maybe, you know, is it, Lord, stop the pain? Or, Lord, forgive them? Take me to be with you. See, because only the Spirit of God can bring about that kind of glory in a man. Only someone who saw glory can speak glory. Stephen sees the glory, it says. He, he, he looks up and sees the Son of Man standing in heaven. Jesus. He sees Jesus standing in heaven. Why is he standing? He's cheering him on. He's advocating for him. He says, you're not alone. I've been where you've been. You can do it, Stephen. Man, preach it. You're almost home. That's what I want to hear when I die, to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's the motto of a person who is captivated by the vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I confess that I hadn't thought a whole lot about Stephen's life and his words before preparing for this message. It was kind of one of those chapters in my reading plan that I would kind of skim through. I never really noticed all the similarities to Jesus' own life and teaching and death. You know, I knew Stephen was the first martyr, the first Christian killed for his faith, and yet there's something so familiar about his story. It, it makes sense, even to us, that in the face that we don't face, you know, imminent death at the hands of an angry mob. But he's living out this what we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in you. Faith like that's built on this rock-solid conviction that Jesus is better than life itself. That faith that has propelled the church forward from the very beginning, and it's no different today. You know, these days, folks, we don't go to the temple to meet with God. And the only glory cloud that the world knows anything about 
is the cloud of witnesses. Ordinary, not spectacular, ordinary Christians like Stephen, like Asia in Pakistan, like you and me, willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, counting the cost, saying to live as Christ and to die as gain, preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached, longing for the same glory even in death. You know, not every glorious death is as dramatic as uh, young Stevens here. Sometimes glory happens with the volume turned way down low. Uh, my grandmother, who taught me the faith, her last words, as far as I know, uh, were uttered months before her actual homegoing. She suffered from early onset dementia for six years. Um, the last words I can remember that she struggled to get out of her mouth were to cite a Bible verse to my sister. She just quote, cited the reference. She said, John 3, 3. You know what that verse says? It's Jesus' words. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, my grandmother was a human. I mean, she had every reason to be sad and bitter because of her disease. She'd been faithful to the Lord for so many years, and yet here she was for six long years. But see, she was full of the Holy Spirit. She was a missionary right up until her voice fell silent. So you don't have to be put on trial for your life to glorify God in death. You can start now by bringing Him glory in your difficulty, by loving your enemies, in your suffering. Ask Him for the wisdom to use what the enemy intends for evil, for His glorious good. And when you do, by the grace of God, trust me, you will change the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you, Lord, that we, Lord, our, our lives and our deaths may not be as spectacular or dramatic as Stephen's, and yet, because we have, we possess the very same spirit, the very same power that Stephen did, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, now lives in us and empowers us. Lord, our lives can bring you glory. We can bring you glory in our, in our triumphs, in our joys, and in our suffering. We can bring you glory in our, in our health, in our sickness, in our weakness, Lord, and in our death. Father, may we, may we be so in love with you and so captivated by the inheritance that awaits us Lord, that our lives might be glorious for you now on this earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.